Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yo, and welcome to the 120th episode of Lake of Rage Pokemon Trading Card Game Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, a.k.a. Mellow underscore Magikarp. I'm joined today by a very special temporary guest host joining us for the first time in a couple of months. It has not been that long, but the, the second time we have the one and only Victor Aung. Victor, how you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to join you on a late Seattle night. I am super excited to have you. You're someone who I thoroughly enjoy talking with about Pokemon, and I think I feel like you're one of the more underrated minds in the game right now. And I mean, it's part of what this podcast is here for to get you less <laughs> underrated in that sense. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just to go over my accomplishments, I suppose, to kind of kind of back that up. Thank my you. biggest one is top eight at NAIC this past season, where I started off undefeated 9-0, um, 12 and then into 12-1. So I was the first one to lock my uh, spot in top eight. And I think over the season my other accomplishments were here and there like i had a couple of top 32s at regionals um but my other cool accomplishments i would say is that i contributed to a couple top four regional finishes from people who have i obviously i wasn't the one to get there but i did contribute to, to decklist for two lost box lists that made top four at regionals and i think that is probably one of my strongest parts of a player uh to me is metagaming making decklists and and whatnot so as you can tell, listeners, if you're not familiar with Victory, haven't listened to the episode about NAIC, this is exactly why I've invited them on. They are, like I said, a brilliant mind, both for metagaming and also the reason we're going to talk today, which is about testing, how you should actually test to get the most out of everything, your accomplishments, your time, your anything that you're looking to do in this game. Because the thing that sparked this is in a discord that both Victor and I are in, Victor had mentioned like, hey, uh, you all are really not doing this correctly. And this is something that I've noticed, listeners, you might have noticed, or you might have even noticed in yourself of like, I don't think I'm getting the most out of this, or I don't think I'm actually testing. It's like, what does that look like at the highest level? So Victor, I think that's the first question that we have to start with is, what is try hard testing? What does that actually look like? I guess to preface my answer, I will say that a lot of this will be my opinion mm -hmm. instead of instead of facts. Pokemon is not a solved game. It's not as um, thought about strategy-wise as something like chess, where there's proper terminology and proper definitions for all these different things. And I think that kind of leads people... I, I That brings me to my first topic. Um, to answer what is proper testing, I, I will say I think we have to kind of settle on what the definition of testing is. And I think people conflate learning and testing a lot. And I think that that contributes to incorrect testing. Mm -hmm. I think I I think sometimes you can do both at the same time and sometimes you can accomplish both at the same time. But I do think the more they're not exactly mutually exclusive, but it almost feels like they are. The more learning you're doing, like 
the less testing you accomplish. And to kind of define them, I would say learning is is more like you are you are picking up a deck, you don't know how to play it, you don't know what the lines are, you don't know what the strategies are, or you're you know some of them, but you still need to learn more and they exist out in the world. And some of your friends might know them, some top players might know them. Um, and you're trying to learn them so that you can execute them in an actual match, in an actual game, in an actual tournament. Um, testing, on the other hand, is, in my opinion, where you have a deck that doesn't exist yet, or a tech that doesn't exist yet, or a matchup that hasn't been thoroughly talked about. There's no articles about it. Very few players are knowledgeable about it. That is, in my opinion, what, what testing is. Testing is kind of like you know how the deck works, but you are trying to figure out something new about it that is hard to find elsewhere. You can't find any information about it elsewhere. Um, that's my opinion. I feel like the more learning, if you're doing like 90% learning, like picking up a deck, your testing is going to, there's it's going to be like 10% testing. And, and it kind of is like a, a gradient scale where mm-hmm. depending on how you are playing your matches, how you are executing your practice, you're doing more of one or the other. So can we start with learning then a little bit? Yes. Because uh, I didn't actually ask you your definition. This has me thinking a little bit. Learning yeah. is you literally just figure out how to play the deck. Is that a good like TLDR? Yes, I think that's that's my take on it, my view on it. That's how I how I view it. I think learning is probably what the majority of players should spend most of their time on mm-hmm. um especially when they're newer to the game or when they're picking up a deck for the first time and also if it's an established meta if it's a meta that has been in play for a while you should be doing more learning rather than testing and um like for for if or if a new set comes out and not much changes basically yes any 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 time where nothing is really shaking up the meta, I think that's where more learning has to take place. Mm-hmm. And in terms of proper learning, I think learning is usually best with other people because, um, I mean, hopefully either with friends or, or a coach or, or, or whatnot, um, because when you're learning, you can go through different strategies and different lines and they might see things that you don't see. So for learning, you said with another person, so we'll get to that part in a second, but I want to think about the individual real quick and something that everyone does, even if they don't realize they do it. And that's what quote unquote theory mon. I assume you're familiar Mm -hmm. with that phrase, right? Yes, of course. You think about the matchups, you think about the deck, you think about, do I have enough attackers to do the thing? How far do you think something like that gets you in that process of let's start with learning? I think it's a good way to learn but i think it is if let's say like i wanted to pick up lugia right mm-hmm. lugia is a deck that has existed for a very long time um even before the rotation there was a variant of lugia where a lot of your a lot of your strategy a lot of your um what's it a, a, a lot of your sequencing is the same even from back then mm-hmm. so if, if i wanted to pick up lugia and i have not played lugia before for me to theory mon my way and catch up to the players who have been playing Lugia for over a year now would basically be almost impossible. The best way to catch up at that point is to ask them, to talk to them, to read articles and get information from them. So there, if it's a deck that exists and people are already experts at it, I would say theory moning is, is 
you can learn that way, but it's ineffective. It's slower. Whereas it, it's kind of like how how school works. Like mm-hmm. we, I, I would never be able to come up with calculus on my own, right? But because people have written them down in textbooks, I, I can learn it. And that's how I see learning as well. That being said, if it's a new deck where it just came out, um, that's where learning and testing kind of, it you blur the line between the two. Um, and at that point, theory modding is much more useful because that information doesn't exist out in the world yet. So do you think it's a fair then of like, okay, I'm going to pick up, let's run with the Lugia example, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick up Lugia. Reagan is the Lugia player. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's like real worth your time to put, attempt to reach out? Obviously, players of like those high calibers, sometimes they get too many DMs or the DMs are closed for that reason or whatever. But let's pretend, right, to reach out to someone like that and be like, instead of sitting here thinking, grinding live games, maybe I should ask some questions of them to kind of expedite that process. Do you think that's a good like, I don't know if first step's the right one, but early step? Yeah, I think I think that's totally totally the case i think talking to reagan or hedrick um or an, anyone that has played lugia at, at a top level that has gotten you know top 32 top 16 tops eights and, and so on at, at regionals and so on would be a, a good way to expedite that learning process mm-hmm. of course there is like a cost benefit analysis you'll have to make in terms of like you know you might have to pay for coaching and and you have to consider what your goals are for the game some people might find it more rewarding to to theory mon themselves and figure it out themselves and figure out all the lines themselves and it would be slower but in if your goal is to just have a rewarding experience rather than like winning immediately that that could be worth it as well especially since you wouldn't have to pay for coaching but in in terms of like if your goal is to win as fast as possible i do think um in that situation reaching out to friends or coaches that have experience in that deck is the fastest way to catch up to to that knowledge that exists that's a good i appreciate that you put out there too the like the goals are different right mm-hmm. not everyone it's not that not everyone wants to win a regional but there's plenty of people who don't even start envisioning themselves with that because they need that first day two first and that top 32 or whatever that top cut mm-hmm. before that actually becomes a like oh i need to win asap and there is that value of okay i worked really hard i played a thousand games of lugia and i now feel like i have learned how to play lugia right yeah um i will say on the topic of reaching out to other people i think it is a common trend that even if you are doing it alone like you're learning lugia alone and you don't reach out for help um the important the most important thing you can do is probably vod review mm-hmm. and i i think it comes up for other games and esports and and competitions like chess and and you know tft and all these other all other games other card games as well sometimes in the moment you might not realize you make a mistake um and if you go back and and watch it back you're more likely to hit it and you're more likely to realize that's something that you can change in the future obviously that is even better if someone if you have a second pair of eyes because everyone has had that experience where they're working on something and they don't notice something is wrong until someone else points it out. Mm-hmm. Um, usually in school, you might write an essay and there's just like a stupid typo or whatever, you know, something like that. So it's, it's pretty common. Um, either way, doing VOD review with, with someone else or by yourself should be very helpful for learning. And it's definitely something that for anyone listening who may not be familiar with getting something that can screen record PTCG live is uh, pretty easy. I've always just used OBS 
but I assume there's other stuff out there that OBS is not very computer intensive. You can download OBS, the free software, Google it, it'll show up. You can screen record the whole thing, and then bam, you're kind of good to go. And this is just as an aside on that, I think my peak as a player was when I was able to stream pretty consistently because A, that gave me VODs. I did a lot of stuff on YouTube with my VOD reviews, and B, Twitch chat. It's mostly full of ding dongs, <laughs> but there are always the occasional just like, hey, you missed a play. And it's like, no, I didn't. Right. And then you go back and watch and you're like, oh, yeah, I threw so hard on that play. Right. right. And that's that yeah. stuff where you don't make those mistakes again, usually sometimes, but you usually don't make those mistakes the second time after you see them. Right. Yes, totally agree. Um, and to give an anecdote about the the coaching thing, when I. I have been playing the game on and off for a very long time. I started when I was like, you know, seven years old back in 2007, 2008. But I only came back to the game as a master relatively recently, like before the pandemic around 2019. So um, I was still pretty new to the game prior to London Worlds, which was not this past Worlds, but the Worlds before that. I was pretty new to coming back to it and, and the regional competition and the modern era and, and all that. Um, and I wanted to play Urshifu to, I believe it was Indianapolis. And, but that, that deck was like pretty new at the time where it was just played to EUIC and one EU regional, I believe. Mm -hmm. So I got coaching from Nico um, Alibus, who I thought was a very like cost effective coach because he was one of the pioneers of the deck along with, with Tord and Robin and knew the deck very well. And he was, I think half the price or even less than half the price of towards coaching. So I got an hour and sat down and just asked some questions about Urshifu and like different deck list choices that I was planning on making at Indianapolis and what he thought of them and if he had considered them and, and so on and so forth. And I, and I did pretty well and I thought it was pretty useful. I went seven, one, one in Indianapolis and then I scrubbed out day two, but I think it was top 64 or top 128 or something. Um, but overall I, I, I don't know if I would have like not made day two or whatever. I can't say for certain um, without the coaching, but I felt like it was pretty helpful. So I think there's definitely merit to um, finding a coach specifically for, for your, the deck that you're looking for to learn. To add on that is just another one. And I know this podcast tends to be pretty coach positive a lot of the time, but there's, mm. there's a reason for that. Like it does work with the proper coach and with you as a student having the goals in mind. I think that's something else that's incredibly important, but you know, and I'd picked up the game. I was already 27, 28 years old. I had just got into it and I'm like, I want to get good now and I've got a full-time job. So I went out, got coaching, right? And it expedited that process, that learning process of just learning the game in general. Yeah. It was just massive. Yeah. Cause there's, there's a lot to the Pokemon trading card game that people kind of underrate, right? Yes, for sure. And I do think that coaching doesn't necessarily have to be like formal you don't have to find paid coaching if you have some friends that you think are an expert at their deck they've been like crushing it at locals with like mew or Lugia or a certain deck that you you or don't really feel comfortable in they can totally help as well um and i think you don't necessarily need to find a top level player to be able to coach i think like for example it depends on your skill level and, and what you're trying to accomplish but if if you're in like you know, fifth grade, your fifth grade teacher isn't like necessarily like the world's top professor, you know, they, they, they're just good at teaching and they, they're good at what they do. And I think there, there definitely exists coaches and teachers 
that are are at that position as well. So I want to go off of the local thing. And you mentioned someone who's been crushing it at locals with this deck you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. What about if someone's been crushing it at locals with a deck that you're not comfortable beating? So let's say your local Maridon player, you always see them in top four. They've been playing Maridon <laughs> since it came out. And you're like, I don't know how to make my, I don't even know what takes a bad Maridon matchup, like nothing. Uh, I don't know how to get yeah. Guardy to beat Maridon. Let's say that, right? Would yeah. you say it's beneficial learning to ask them to play their Maridon into your Guardy? Like, and how would you approach that as the Guardy player? Not asking necessarily, but the playing part. Yeah, I think the first thing you should do instead of just like grinding games like mindlessly is to ask them. Um, hopefully, they've thought about it. Like, what is as a Maridon player in this in this scenario, you can ask them like as a Maridon player, what is the most annoying thing to deal with like when you're playing against Guardi? Like what like what can go wrong? And finding their lose conditions is the same as finding your win conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And try to put those into practice, especially if you haven't heard of them before, especially if you haven't seen those lines before. And once you have that knowledge, you probably want to try and use that in in those practice games. Um and I, I think if you play games mindlessly without thinking about them, without thinking about what could have happened, what could go wrong, and et cetera, et cetera, I think um, I think you won't get as much as you as you could out of it. And I will say, I think both for learning and testing, it's generally useful to play with um, with an open hand for both players. I think you can you can hide your hand during like tough like if your opponent is making a choice that would depend on what is in your hand like oh should they iono you or whatnot but when whenever you have a decision that you're even like like only 98 percent sure about you sh- you can show it to your opponent show it to your friend nearby and be like hey like what would you do here and that can sometimes spark debates that i think are, are really useful for learning what would you say is like an appropriate number of people like so you said at least two right a couple is you Mm. ever sitting around with three four five six like how big can these groups get before it suddenly becomes uh counterproductive (laughs) um i think it just i think it depends on your your group there's definitely some groups that are a little bit more rowdy um and there's it also depends on what you're trying to accomplish if you're testing like for a regional you don't have much time and you have four people you probably do want to run two different two different games and just have people focus on those two games but if you're if you're having like a more um chill time i think three four people focus on on one single game can also work and you'll get more in-depth discussions rather than it, it's kind of like a breadth versus versus depth if you need more data versus more like um correct accurate data having more people on one game will will give you more accurate correct data and correct analysis when you say when you say the word data the the scientist in me is automatically thinking what (laughs) some of our listeners are probably like you got your spreadsheet if you ever listen to us we'll talk right you you got the spreadsheet that caleb puts together for his group and they always talk about the spreadsheet said play this spreadsheet you know there's numbers there's whatever how do you what data are you gathering are you going off vibes are you recording every single thing like what is the data i am also a spreadsheet believer um ever since i heard them talk about it's probably like a, a year ago now i've i've been trying to execute and use a spreadsheet to kind of see like expected win rates into a meta and i think it it makes a lot of sense um i think ultimately i'm a very 
when I play video games, when I play competitive games, I'm I'm very data driven. My friends sometimes even make fun of me for it. When we when we play like League of Legends, for example, just for fun, I'll be like, okay, this champ, this character, I'll look it up, and this character has like a fifty five percent win rate, which is like, and I'm like, this character is broken. I'm gonna play it, and then I'll look up a different character it has a forty five percent win rate, and I'm like, this character is terrible. I'll never play it, and um, it's just a way of seeing what is good at a glance and there's obviously like nuance to like win rate where like some decks are some characters and decks are harder to play so they might skew lower and and what whatnot and so forth but i think win rate is super super cool and a super super good way to make decisions unfortunately for pokemon um there's not a lot of data there's there's online data but online data is often it's okay but it's not um it's not a large enough sample size, especially given that you can't. In in League of Legends, there's, there's millions of games happening, so you can you can com- confine the data to just like Diamond Plus or like high level players only, and you still have thousands and thousands of entries where your data is like concrete, and you do know that these are like good players that are piloting this character correctly. Um, this doesn't exist in Pokemon because there's no there's no rank system. Unfortunately, so if you do find the online data on play.limitless, it can it combines everything. So if you have a deck that is like clearly good and is doing well in the hands of top players, it could still like show as under 50% online because it's a hard deck to play and is a hard deck to pilot. Or it might just not be good into the online meta, which is sometimes different from in-person meta. So I think what I do for the spreadsheet is I use online data as a baseline and say like, okay, this is the meta, like lost Tina's 12%, blah, blah, blah. Put it that in the spreadsheet. Lost box is 10%, put that in the spreadsheet. And then I'll also use win rates online as baseline data. And I'll say like, okay, I'm considering lost box. The lost Tina matchup is like 50, whatever percent. And I put that in. And then that should spit out a number, which tells you what your win rate is into everything and that should line up with play.limitless tells you and then i'll go back and i'll change stuff that i don't think is correct like maybe i think the next regional there will be less lost tina and i'll i'll bump that number down and i maybe i think the win rate is better than 55 percent, and maybe it's 60 percent for me and i'll bump that number up and i'll mess with it to try and get it to where i think the true win rate is and obviously it's not a true win rate it's just me guessing but it's kind of like educated guessing and i think that's what azul and caleb do as well um in terms of if I'm not sure about a win rate, I might ask friends about it. I might theory mon about it, and I might also play games um, against myself. And I, if I had unlimited time, I would just grind out like dozens of games. Unfortunately, I don't. So sometimes I'll I'll do like five to ten, and and get like a, a feel for the matchup that way. Sometimes. Do you think that's? I mean, obviously, more is better. Even as he said, yes, that that's the sure. the moral of every story here. But let's say you're strapped for time, like me. Uh, do you think that five or 10 is a pretty appropriate, like to get a vibe for a specific matchup of like, okay, you know, guardian to Charizard is slightly favored because, you know, in the eight games I played, it went six, two or something like that. Do you think that's a good enough sample size or like, where are you kind of at with that? I think 10 is pretty good. Um, given that we don't have a limited time, um, between six and 10 is okay. You you get like kind of you start to get an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it is hard though, especially for like 
for example, Zard versus Guardi is a little bit tougher because Zard lists are not fully refined yet. Whereas if, if it's like Guardi Mirror, it's like you're changing like two cards unless you're like you could play the work three worker version but like you're changing three cards at most and it doesn't like impact the matchup that that heavily mm-hmm. it doesn't influence the matchup that heavily so it's easier to like sit down and be like play 10 games and be like this is probably the win rate um whereas if you play 10 versus Zard versus Guardi, you might roll into a regional and they have like three tech cards that you were not trying out and it could be different so um Short answer, the number 10 is pretty good, but sometimes it's, like, not... Sometimes you might need more to test, like, different um, variants of a deck. That makes sense. I and... guess we're also starting to roam into the the testing category a, a little bit for, from learning. And they do, they do blend together, but they're not, they're not exactly the same. Well, let's go ahead and dive into... Unless, actually, before we do that, anything else on yeah. the learning aspect that you think should be mentioned? Um, I, I mentioned it before, but I do think most players, um, including myself should spend a lot of their time learning instead of testing and thinking of it that way, especially if it's a deck that already exists or if it's a meta that already exists or has, has, is pretty, um, found out the odds of you finding like, uh, something that is unexpected and unexpectedly good in a in an established meta is much lower than in into a tournament where new cards just came out and people don't really know what's happening yet so in terms of like if you were trying to like obviously it's very rewarding to to play a tournament with um cards or a deck that people don't expect and doing well with it i i feel that myself i i play a lot of wacky cards sometimes um to try and get an advantage but sometimes it you do have to cut your losses where like if something if the meta has been established for like weeks and weeks, it's less unless it's like super centralized, it's less likely that you'll find something like out of the blue. Um, and you might want to just like focus on the next tournament where something new is coming out and, and spending your time towards that because you're more likely to break something that way. So you're telling me Oink alone Crobat might not be <laughs> my best use of probably, time. Probably probably not. Um and I have spent hours and hours thinking about crowbat so that 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 comes from experience I, that card it just should be good except yet it's not yeah <laughs> reversal energy gave me too much hope anyway. i will say i guess before we move on i will say the two factors in whether or not it's likely that you'll find something that's unexpected and that's like broken or like really optimal where it hasn't been seen before the the two factors are it if it's a not a less established meta it doesn't have to be brand new because if it's brand new it's very hard to predict what's going to happen so you can't really like counter anything per se i think in a brand new meta the most broken the most like optimal route to success is to find like very high power decks that are good by themselves like they don't like really rely on taking certain matchups they're just strong overall and finding an optimal list for that so for peoria that probably looks like the best version of charizard for naic um not not this past season but the for the season before palkia just came out so the the people that were optimizing palkia and running the four irida list had like a big let up big leg up on the competition um that that's kind of my stance so on the very first co- competition look into like the 
the most consistent best version of a very strong deck and once the meta like shows itself but is not fully settled that's when you can find like the best counter deck usually but that also relies on you having a more narrow meta if the if the meta is too wide it's hard to counter everything and that's um i think part of the reason sander didn't go to naic last year because the meta was so wide that it was hard to find a control deck that countered everything i think there's a lot of people who are listening who are very upset at that concept but don't worry a lot of us are if they print good cards sometimes you just have to play the good cards right right yeah i i think that's the case unless yeah especially for the for the first competition where it's it's hard to establish like for example lugia like over time last season before rotation people found the intellion articuno deck that was able to counter it mm. but that's only because like lugia lips list started to like converge on a single list that didn't have counters to to paralysis um at least not enough counters to paralysis but it's hard it would have been hard to imagine making that articuno deck that is so specific on beating something without seeing a lugia list like do well first and i think that's kind of like the natural cycle of, of the meta every time a new set comes out I think the one like weird exception to that would have been the EUIC Guardi, right? Where everyone decided that Ma Wile was necessary in Guardi, like all together. Yeah. <laughs> like what I, that one that that one was like a little bit accelerated where people were like whispering in, in the background about Ma Wile and then and then people in Lugia were already playing like they weren't playing Penny before EUIC, but then the day before people like started smashing Penny into their lists and, and whatnot. Um and Thornton as well. And I think that's just like that it it's the same cycle as I was talking about, just a little bit accelerated, that it happened before a competition even happened. Mm -hmm. Um and I think that's because the stakes in IC are so high. I think if it's like a regional followed by a regional, it's probably less likely to be accelerated like that. Whereas in in EUIC people were testing like out of their minds and they were testing with like not only with their own groups, but they were testing and sharing with information as with as much people as possible just to get a, as wide of, of opinions as possible. And and that's kind of how, how that came to be, in my opinion. So let's go ahead and jump into the testing part of things, because mm -hmm. that's what most people talk about when, like you said, the learning aspect. But then you have a deck, you've played 100 games of Guardi or whatever, but now you figured out the flaws. How do you fix those flaws? What does testing actually look like? Assuming that's even what you mean by testing. Yeah, so I'll I think testing still has a wide definition even once you carve out learning from from the definition. Testing can look like in general I th I think it's having a hypothesis um and trying to to test something so your hypothesis can be something like oh I think Viratum changes the Lugia matchup by quite a bit, like it increases my odds of winning by 20%, and that's your hypothesis. And the way to figure out if that's true or not um, is to play games. And and if if you've taken statistics, you know that there's like a number of games that you would have to play to be statistically significant. Unfortunately, it's probably not, there's probably not enough time to be able to to really do that. But you can try and and you can you can try and get as close as possible given the time that you have. So what I did, for example, for this past regional at Pittsburgh, I, I played Rapid Strike Urshifu. I knew that Lugia and Mew were like very, very bad matchups. And I was thinking, okay, what if I dedicate one slot to Spiritomb? I didn't want to play both Spiritomb and, and Giacomo because it's just two cards and it's very, very clunky. 
Um, so I was like, okay, what if I play Spirit Tomb? I, I don't think that helps me be, be, me beat Mew, but will I win enough games against Lugia that I can conceivably win a best of three? And I played 10 games of Urshifu versus Lugia where I played Spirit Tomb in my deck and I went 0 and 10 and Lugia won all 10 games. And then I cut Spirit Tomb from my deck and I was... Um, I didn't do well at Pittsburgh, but I was rewarded for that choice because I only played against one Lugia um, uh, that day. And I don't think the Spirit Tomb would have helped. It maybe would have won me one game, but that doesn't matter in best of three, right? So um, I, I, I think that's an example of... of how you can test something and come to a decision on whether or not a card in your deck is good. So it's literally as simple as I'm going to play this game with one card change and determine if it made the difference. Yeah, if you if you if you come from a science background, it's you know that if you have conflating variables, it's it's hard to kind of figure out what's happening and to narrow down on like what's going on. So if you if you play 10 games with of 60 cards and then you change out 10 of them and you and you play another 10 games and suddenly you're losing way more it's hard to tell exactly like why you're you're losing those games um if you've changed many cards i'm not saying you have to change specifically one card every time um but it's it's easier to troubleshoot a deck once when you are narrowing down what could possibly be the problem so let's kind of go in the opposite direction of the one spirit tomb to fix the Lugia matchup and go with a 151 example of Grabber in DTE Mew. You know, the, yeah. the worst kept secret because everyone immediately is like, this is broken, right? <laughs> the, you cannot play one Grabber. You probably can't even play two. It's kind of a, you need to spam this thing most likely. So you're immediately like, all right, do you shove four in there? And then from there, how do you decide if three is better or two is better or this card completely is better? unplayable trash and dte mu is bad like what do you do with a card like that where you're changing a significant amount yeah if you're not sure exactly on what the the count should be um you should probably try both zero and four and see what feels better and then kind of like hone in on a number that feels right so you can go to zero and four and you can say oh they four like feels better and so you can but it doesn't feel like perfect you can try three or two at that point or if zero feels better, you can try one and see see if that actually like ever matters in your games. Um, but I think it, it makes sense to go to the extremes and then kind of like work your way down. Um, for example, like it, it's the same for a lot of things. But uh, in programming, you can you you search you search for a value that way. Um, in in gaming, like if you are not sure what your mouse sensitivity should be, it's the same way. You like go to the extremes and then you and then you take the the middle and then you keep taking the middle until you until you find what what feels right in terms of counts so then what are some other things for testing like how do you actually you're playing against yourself how do you do that how do you feel confident that you're playing the pokemon trading card game well <laughs> that you can yeah. actually get something out of this i think Unluckily, I I don't think there is a great way to know for sure unless you're comfortable on on both decks, mm -hmm. and um and it's because humans are very prone to um I don't know what the term is but just bias in general um if if you don't have another eye other eyes on you you're you're not going to be sure if you are doing it correctly so I think 
if you're testing a, a hypothesis, the fastest way and and fastest is generally the most optimal because you get the most data in the least amount of time. The fastest way is to play games against yourself, mm-hmm. um, it's especially on label limitless tabletop simulator because you don't have to shuffle. And once you know the hotkeys, it can go really fast. I can knock out you know ten games in like two hours or something like that, maybe less. Um, un- unfortunately, if you don't know both decks, your data might be flawed. So even though that is the most optimal, assuming you know both decks, if you don't know both decks, you might have to concede a little bit of time and, and work with someone else. And I think that's perfectly okay too. Um, you are you're trading just a little bit of time to like actually know for sure that both players are playing optimally. Um, and I think there's also... Interestingly enough, there there is an element of playing too well, depending on what what your goal is at a regional. Um, for example, I went zero and ten in the spirit tomb example, but that's because I was playing like quote unquote like optimal Lugia, where like people would not have played, and like it was optimal. I like for example, I was doing I was Luminioning for Burnett early, mm-hmm. going as Lugia going first. And you would like pretty much never do that against Urshifu if it's a blind matchup and you don't know that they play Spirit Shroom or not. And I think like that could have won me a couple games in that ten game set. Um, and probably that would come up in in regionals as well, where they wouldn't Luminion for Burnett a turn early if they didn't need to, mm-hmm. because like you could get Ionoed right. So there there would be like no point in doing that. You would just put bench a Luminion for no reason. And Urshifu does play Iono, so it's it's not reasonable to do that unless you're sure that they're playing spirit tomb um so there is an element of playing a little bit too well so i wouldn't worry about playing like perfectly unless you're unless you're like one of those players who are like oh i'm sure i'm gonna day two every time and i'm only worried about like playing against tord or whoever is playing best right now (laughs) um but for the most part as long as you're playing generally well and you're playing um, to the level of your average regional player, or maybe a little bit better, maybe your average day two player. I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be too worried about playing perfectly in, in your in your sessions. And how do you decide what like lists you're going to be testing against? So you're testing against Lugia. Like, where are you getting this Lugia list from to make you so confident that like this is going to give me a good sample? Generally, if the meta, if the cards, if they're are not new cards the last regional is probably the best place to to get a list Mm -hmm. um usually the top placing one is generally what people kind of gravitate towards and that will be like kind of the average list especially for something like lugia where there's only a couple really cards that you can change over and that's where i usually will test it that's what i usually will test against as well um it's a little bit trickier though for for a new meta for example like peoria it's the first regional with 151 legal in at least in the west Mm -hmm. so the most you can do is use online results or japanese results and neither are really going to be fully accurate to peoria so at that point you have to kind of use your own intuition and use kind of like what your friends are telling you and, and kind of do some guesswork and it could be right it could be wrong um, but you just kind of have to predict and and try your best. Do you ever, when you're trying to figure out, like, what am I testing against, like these matchups you're trying to beat, do you ever worry about, okay, I'm going to North American Regional so far, 
I mean, the big ones are the Rahul Bradner group, the Azul group, you know, like they tend to go for Mew or Lost Box or etc. And does that add extra weight to you? The fact that these players are often going to pick these types of decks as opposed to Maridon or Xi'an Pao or whatever? Or do you not think about that at all? I know some players that do think about it, and um, I guess I do think about it, but I don't think it, it weighs very heavily on my mind. I think there is something to be said about... Um, I, I think there's just too many good players at this point, and the regionals are too large. If the regionals were smaller, if there were like 200 players, like 600 players, somewhere in that range, mm-hmm. you could make an argument that you will run into one of those players and and you want like at least a 50-50 or like close to 50-50 matchup, if not better, into them. Um, but when the regional is 1,800 people, like it's so low odds that you're going to hit them. Even, even after assuming that you are a good player and they are a good player and you're going to have a good record at some point, even taking that into account, the odds of hitting hitting someone from a specific group is very, very, very low. I will say there is like a an alternative that kind of takes that into consideration. So we were talking about the spreadsheet before um, and for those, it's basically a, a win rate calculator. You, you input all the meta and then it spits out like, out of these five decks, which one has the best run weight, which is theoretically what which is the best play. You can, if you want, make two versions of that spreadsheet or make two tabs where one is day one meta, expected meta, and you can say, well, good players will tend towards these decks and they'll, they will day two at a higher percentage, so there will be a higher conversion. So for example, there you might expect 10% lost Tina, for example, but you could say, oh, lost Tina, let's say you respect lost Tina and you say you, that you think it's good in the meta right now. You could say day two, I think, Day two will actually be 15% of the meta. And then you can make another tab, change those numbers, and you can see which of your decks um, kind of falter or improve in day two specifically. And that could influence your decision if you feel confident that you're going to make day two. Mm-hmm. And I think that does take into account, like, hey, like I think these groups tend to stray away from like Chen Power, tend to stray away from Rhydon. So it's like less likely that they'll make day two with those decks. And I do have to add before I get angry emails or DMs or whatever, make sure to follow Lake of Rage Pod on Twitter. I, yes, I'm aware Mahone's group plays Maridon. Yes, they are one of the strongest <laughs> groups in North America. Uh, that was just the example we're, we're getting. Don't, don't yell at me for that one, okay? <laughs> just had to come up with something. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a random pick. I think, I think Maridon is respectable and usually converts at least like one-to-one. So It's lately. I would... Red is really just a new for Pittsburgh thing. Yeah, that's the the lists are getting more optimized. I think people were kind of confused about them before. Shout to Lugia for still the as a quick aside, that deck always overperforms the day one to day two. It's wild. Worlds, it didn't show up in day two, but that's different because it's not a converting thing. It's just like people just didn't just chose not to bring it. True. Uh, I was thinking, gosh, what was the the one in Europe? I forget completely. Barcelona. The Barcelona SPE, it went from not on the list, so under 8% to like 17% in day two. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't see that. That's crazy. And then P- Pittsburgh was also a very high, like 10 to 14 or 15 yeah. or something. It was, it was a pretty that good. That right. Yeah, Lugia's... I, I despise Lugia with all of my heart. Anyway. Same. Uh, a, a very quick uh, TLDR. Correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm missing anything. But as a as a wrap up, so learning is figuring out how to play the deck and the matchups, and should be what most players spend their time on. 
most agree. Most learning is done, should be done, not is done, but should be done in at least pairs. Should be collaborative. Yes. So you're not just playing against each other, but you're playing with each other. Yes. And you should show each other your hands whenever you're making a choice. Oh, it's a quick aside on that one. This is one of the things that I picked up from. Technically, I got it from JP, but JP got it from Sam Chen, who is just <laughs> legendary in the game, right? At the start of the turn, doing the exact same thing, open-handed, etc., says, I'm going to do this this turn. I'm going to boss KO your Charizard EX this turn. And then every play is very much like, this is going to get me here because of X, Y, and Z. And so something that helped me out a ton for anyone listening, if you're like, this seems hard, just that helps so much. Because that even lets your opponent, too, if you are working together, of like, that really doesn't seem like your best play for this turn. And then all right. your other moves suddenly change, because now it's no longer right. optimal to go for that thing. Okay, so yeah, collaborative, open hand, work together. Mm. Yes. Uh, I think I already mentioned, but you said 90% of your time should be spent learning. It it depends. I think 90% if it's an established meta and mm-hmm. you are trying and you are thinking about playing an established deck also. Yeah. And then testing your... Actually, we never talked about creating a new deck, but I guess that might be a whole other side tangent that doesn't <laughs> exist right now. So you're, you're figuring out your techs for testing. It is... Ideally against someone, but potentially against yourself, grinding a matchup as much as possible. You said, you know, 10 games is a realistic one, right? But some people listening might be college students who have hundreds of hours of free time a week. (laughs) And then figuring out off of that, okay, this is helping or isn't helping me. And then cutting it off based off of the actual data that you are then recording. Yes, and I I will say that you even with ten games, which is reasonable to do, you won't have time to to try every matchup in a wide meta. Like some some times in history, there's only been like three decks. In which case, yeah, sure, you can you can play all all the matchups possible. Now there's like ten, so it's you if you're considering multiple decks, you're now you're talking hundreds of games, which is just not possible. So you would you would probably focus on the more contentious matchups where you you have a, a hypothesis that like. Hey, I think this matchup isn't quite what online is showing or isn't quite what like these articles are talking about. I think there's something I can do here that would make the matchup better, which would make this deck like a better play for me personally. And I think those are the matchups that you should really focus in and hone in on. Any other thoughts before closing it out? I think overall, I, I think in conclusion, if it's an expected deck if it's a established deck established meta learning should should take the priority of your, the most of your time and should be priority but testing can also be really fun new decks new metas uh new tech cards that you're trying and i think both are are pretty important into succeeding at, at the pokemon tcg unless you are just focusing on your playing skill and you want to play decks that already exist and i think there are a lot of players that that do like to do that as well so i think that it also kind of depends on on what kind of player you are if for me like i like to gain my advantages before the tournaments because i don't i sometimes get like nervous or anxious at tournaments so i like to try and maximize that time whereas i think i was even talking to to cameron kawasaki recently where he likes to play the most consistent deck and and outplay his opponents in the match themselves so um kind of figure out what what your strong suits are and and how much time you should dedicate to testing and learning 
um, depends on that. Victor, if the people want more from you or to ask any questions, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at underscore underscore ITVIC at Vic. I also have been recently casting the Late Night series, which has been moved to Wednesday. So check that out on the Shuffle Squad's channel. Um, I'm really excited to cast that series because it's my dream and my goal to be a caster one day. So check it out if you have some time on Wednesday. If you're playing the tournament, stop by, say hi, and, and we can chat. Myself, you can find me on Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube at Mellow underscore Magic Arp. The podcast is at Lake of Rage Pod on Twitter. Uh, leave a comment, a review, etc. Leave a happy comment, preferably not an angry comment about my on hate. This has been an episode of the Lake of Rage podcast. We'll catch you all next week.